Hi, my name is Leah Lakshmi Piepsnesnamarsinga, and I'm a disability justice movement worker, writer, and a lot of what I do is unpaid community care work and, yeah, crisis intervention. And um, what does it feel like to be a care worker in the third year of the pandemic? For me, as a disabled brown queer person, I feel... It means feeling both simultaneously super optimistic and proud of what disabled and chronically ill people have created in terms of systems that are pushing back against eugenics and keeping each other alive and the interventions we're making in demanding slash insisting slash practicing that people still mask, still disclose, still create spaces where we are not going to die and feeling incredibly cynical and heartbroken about how many people, um, not just the government and the state systems, but also people in social justice communities, in our communities, are rushing towards denial and abandoning community safety practices um, in a way out of a desire to hold trauma by disassociating. Um, I can get that it's a survival strategy and I also just have heartbreak because I'm like, well, everything you do is not just about you. It also affects my safety and my community's safety. So when you just go, ah, I'm getting on with it. I'm just like, well, we can't hang out so much. I can't go to your party. Um, that's one part of it. The other really, really big part is something I've been sitting with where this is a broad stroke, but I keep feeling like I see that there are people I know who some way or other are mostly keeping it together, <laughs> you know, for the most part. Um, we have hard times, we have moments of crisis, we have deep grief, we have big feelings, but for whatever reason, we are able to stay mostly, you know, like in a place that feels like there's some kind of balance. Um, and then I see a lot of people who are also in my community who have popped all the way off and are really, really sad, really angry, really in crisis, and who are spinning out. And I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but um, I see it really coming from everything that we've survived the last three years and meeting an almost complete lack of space of public acknowledgement for it. Like there's no, there's no Vietnam War Memorial for the COVID dead. There's no public acknowledgement or ceremonies um, about for people who are disabled people or healthcare workers or people in prison who have seen tens of people die, if not more, and just seen so much bananas shit. And so I just see people really ready to go and it doesn't always look directly connected, but it can just look like people being in crisis, being stuck in trauma loops, um, being ready to beat somebody up, being ready to beat themselves up. And what's happening a lot of the time is that because there is complete inadequacy in terms of, you know, organized, regulated mental health support, you know, and those places aren't safe. Um, a lot of the folks in group two are popping off in group one because we are the closest, we are safer, we are there. And they're asking, they need a lot of resources and support and we don't always have it because 
we're also holding our own shit, like our own broken hearts, our own grief. We're already at capacity. And I think we're in a real rubber hits the road movement of when we say we keep us safe, when we say that we are building um, alternative systems of care. It's like, what does that look like when people who are care workers have been stretched so fucking thin and are continuing to be stressed and maybe in crisis ourselves? Like, I'm not saying that, like, there's like the good crips and the bad crips or the good neurodivergent people and the bad neurodivergent people. Not at all. Um, there's overlap. In and it's not about good and bad, but there's overlap in terms of more together and more crisis-y. But the TLDR is like, what happens when we're reached for and we are the alternative system and we are completely tapped out? And I'm really worried and thinking a lot about what it's going to be like as the summer heats up and what this is going to mean for our communities, our people, and our movements. And I don't have a really great answer, but I want to start by asking the question. Yeah. Hi, my name is Bridget Bertrand, and I'm sending in a dispatch to Living in This Queer Body from my own voice, but also within the Kintsuke Therapist Collective that's been created by Asher and Onyx. I am a therapist. I'm an expressive arts facilitator, and... I want to say a couple words about what brought me to the Kintsuke Collective. I had worked with Asher in a one-off session a while ago and really had been drawn into the Living in This Queer Body podcast as I came out late in life and just started down my own path toward getting to know my community, getting to know the folks in queer community who were doing the work for many, many, many decades. And that led me to places like Resma Menicum and Embodied Work with the Embodied Lab and also um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and the Liberated Life Collective. So I've joined a lot of collectives this year, these last two years, and I, I feel optimistic that they've grounded me and rooted me in a place where I can still offer services and reflection and care for my clients that feels nourishing and I hope authentic. And I think the way that works is by, of course, offering that to yourself primarily in the form of your own therapy and for me in expressive arts by journaling and moving my body and dancing. I just can't say enough about the people I've come across in this collective and through even Asher's Instagram feed and people like Marley Grace, who I've had the good fortune to do some classes with and just queer community that extends across this world. It, so just to end, I wanna say, if you are a therapist, I'm in solidarity with you and 
even if you're not clear if this work is effective, I think we have to turn toward people of like minds who are on a path of fighting for liberation of those who are struggling and maybe you are one of those people. I think we all are at some point in our life and there aren't exactly words, but one that I've come to land on is wishing people ease and wishing us to have moments of ease, moments of rest, and also moments of grief because this is a time where we we have to grieve, we have to look around and, and take as much in as we can and then and then put it away. So this is my dispatch from San Francisco, California, which is Ohlone Ramatush lands. My name is Dr. Jenny Wong Hall, and I am an eating disorder psychologist located in San Diego, California. So being a psychologist in year three of the pandemic has just been an experience of overwhelming grief. Um, I think it is a grief that is stinging all of us so deeply. And I really think that lockdown has opened our eyes to the systems of harm that have been, you know, perpetrating violence on so many forever. And I think about it kind of like, you know, a storm has been brewing and brewing for decades, centuries, for such a long time. And now with all of us being in our homes, being on lockdown, we see that there are torrential rains. And I think that some of us are running, hiding, screaming, dancing, holding each other all in turn at different points. Um, and basically there's no turning back at this point. And so it's really been my privilege, I think, as a therapist to hold space for people to build new things both internally and work to rebuild a society that um, is focused on love and focused on liberation. Um, with my particular focus on eating disorders and anti-carceral care, one of the things that has been really cool is I've seen a shift in truly understanding what care means and conceptualizing care in different ways that are focused on connection, community healing, um, empowerment, you know, use of ancestral wisdoms. Um, and people are just really able to see, I think for the first time in, in a lot of ways, the failures of the mental health industrial complex and the ways in which there are fractures and harms and people aren't getting what they need, or they're getting things that they didn't ever, ever want. Um, and, you know, abolition is really the goal that all cages come down, including the ones that operate under the guise of psychiatric care. Um, eating disorder treatment has long been coercive and oppressive. And so it's really been such a privilege for me to get to provide education and training for providers um, and really to do a lot of listening and just listening to the stories of survivors. When I think about where I am at this point, three years in, I feel like I am still very much in the muck and waking up and trying to figure out how to navigate, um, navigate all of this grief and be with people in their most raw humanity and connect with them over their rage and grief. Um, and sometimes it feels really, really heavy and overwhelming, but I am consistently guided by the framework of abolition. Um, you know, it is, 
it is abolition that gives me hope and allows me to imagine a different future. And, you know, abolition is not just about dismantling. You know, of course, we need to dismantle systems of harm that, um, you know, have perpetrated violence for centuries. But the really joyful, really exciting part is imagining the future, um, imagining what life, care, community could be in a different world that we can consistently move towards even if we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. So it is on a daily basis that with joy I seek abolition and create anti-carceral care. I love talking about all this and would love the opportunity to have more of this discourse. Mm -hmm.